Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Megan Gibson in London. It's Monday, the 8th of November. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international affairs podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest from their unique perspective and expertise. Today, I'm speaking to Hong Kong pro-democracy activist Nathan Law. As student leader, he co-founded Demasisto, a political party that grew out of the 2014 Umbrella Movement. He became the youngest lawmaker in history of Hong Kong before the government disqualified him from office. He was even imprisoned in 2017 for demonstrations held when he was a student. After the introduction of a controversial national security law in Hong Kong in 2020, he took political asylum in the UK. He has just published his first book, Freedom, How We Lose It and How We Fight Back. Nathan Law, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for the invitation, Megan. So I'm just going to dive in straight away. You came to London shortly after Hong Kong introduced its national security law. By that time, you'd already spent years campaigning for democratic freedoms in the territory. What was it about this particular law that worried you enough to leave? The national security law is a law that is unprecedented for Hong Kong. It uh, circumvented all the Hong Kong uh, local legislation and consultation process, and it criminalized free speech and criminalize uh, political thoughts. There have been cases that there are people raising certain flag slogans or chanting certain slogans on the protest, and they're being prosecuted with the national security law. So by then, we all knew that it would be uh, very draconian, and every democratic campaigner would be submitted to its threat. So that's the reason why, for me, I needed to leave Hong Kong in order to preserve a voice, to really tell the world about the story of Hong Kong and continue to speak freely free from the national security law. In the years since it has been introduced, I think it's been far more draconian than many people expected. We've seen everyone from activists to politicians to academics and journalists being prosecuted under it. At the time, did you realize how quickly it would escalate? We didn't really expect that speed of it. Of course, we uh, we foresaw that trajectory of it, but speed was incredible. You are literally witnessing Hong Kong's civil society with decades of fu- foundation collapse in just around a year of time. 
we've got the largest independent media company forced to close. It was a listed company. And we've got a lot of uh, different organizations that supporting the cornerstone of the civil society, including unions, including organizations that host the Tenement Vajral on 4th of June every year, including a lot of political parties and organizations. They've all been forced to close in just a year. So this is just a traumatic speed. And for a lot of people, we, we saw it as a huge erosion in Hong Kong. And that has global implication, which freedoms could easily be lost in such a short period of time. I want to go back a bit to when you first got involved in political activism. You were just a student. You were 21. What do you recall were the first signs that you noticed that democracy was backsliding in Hong Kong? So I actually grew up in a very humble background. My father swarmed to Hong Kong in the late 70s from mainland China because there was just a big famine. He had to survive. So he left China and then been through a very dangerous trip from mainland China to Hong Kong and reached Hong Kong. Afterward, he worked there. But for me, our whole family has always been a blue color one. My father was a builder. My mother was a street cleaner. It's always been apolitical. I didn't really talk about politics, social affairs when I was at home. It was not until when I was in secondary school in a very poor pro-Beijing one that uh, the school principal on the next day of Niu Xiaobo was awarded with the Nobel Peace Prize. Our school principal publicly denounced him on the morning assembly. So by then I only knew that Nobel Prize are giving people who are excellent on that field. So how come such a person, a Chinese person, would be criticized that way. So it really triggered my curiosity and I looked, looked up for the works of uh, Neil Boy and about democracy, about, about freedom, etc. So it really opened up a, a gate for me to understand that and become more emotionally aware. And looking back from that time when you first got involved with the Umbrella Movement and helped found the Umbrella Movement, essentially, and to how quickly things have devolved since then, is there a point when you can really pinpoint where things could have stopped and gone the other way? Or was it just an onslaught of loss, basically? In order to understand Hong Kong's situation, I think we just have to go back to the rise of Chinese authoritarianism, the way that how they grew much more aggressive and confident in their totalitarianism in that way. The Red Movement took place in 2014 when Xi Jinping just assumed power and Xi Jinping just implemented a lot of policies to, uh, to annihilate the, the civil society made in China, to kick out foreign NGOs and basically double hand, uh, heavy hand, double down uh, their suppression in, in that civil society and independent thinking made in China. And that was like a, a trend that influenced Hong Kong's politics. When we saw China was no longer the one who was like trying to lie down, trying to be a benign international player trying to interact with other countries, trying to get into the rule-based international order. By then, they were actually trying to rewrite the international order and to promote authoritarianism worldwide. So when you look into what has been happening in Hong Kong into that context, you realize that we're, we're literally fighting against the largest authoritarian expansionist power. And for us, what we can do Sometimes we wanted democracy, but at the end of the day, we understood that by slowing down its deterioration of freedom, it was already something remarkable that we have achieved. By demonstrating and, and by showing how 
Chinese government treating its dissidents and, and committing human rights violation in order to awaken the world, which was literally what we did in 2019 protest, was also very remarkable in that front. So I think that there has been very little room or chance for us to overturn the system to make it much more democratic. But we've actually achieved something that in our own capacity that we, we, we could do. And how hopeful are you that democracy in Hong Kong can still be saved? How, how can you fight for it from outside the country? For the short-term future, of course, is really grim because you see China's growing power. They would just try to monopolize the, the, the system in Hong Kong. But in a long-term future, definitely we have hope. China, they would face a lot of problems, internal ones, external ones. For now, they are struggling to do industrial transformation. They're struggling with their aging society and, 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 and a slowing down economy. It will trigger a lot of problems and people would demand a mandate and legitimacy in the future if they're not pleased about the economic development. That would be some turning points in the future. And for me, as a person who has been advocating for Hong Kong democracy and global democracy outside of Hong Kong, we have responsibilities to preserve Hong Kong's culture, preserve Hong Kong's identity and the community, because these are the things, the uniqueness that the Chinese Communist Party wanted to erase from Hong Kong. They wanted us to lose our, our culture, to lose our history, to lose the way that we understand Hong Kong, which is different from the Chinese culture. But this is important task for us to preserve those things and to continue to speak up for Hong Kong as they are unable to do so under the national security law. You mentioned global democracy and you write in your book, Freedom. I hope to show you how freedom is under threat everywhere. What did you mean precisely by that? So the book Freedom is about looking at Hong Kong issue through my lens. What I've been through for the past few years are actually uh, rhythming the erosion of freedom in Hong Kong. I was a protest leader. I was the youngest elected parliamentarian. And then I became unseated in jail and faced a lot of difficulties and suppressions. It is vividly displayed how Hong Kong's system are being eroded and manipulated by the Chinese government. And also looking at this example of Hong Kong, you could really see in the global implication that how quick freedoms could be eroded if we don't have the protection of democracy, how rule of law could be lost so quickly if we do not have the protection of democracy. It is a reminder not for not only for Hong Kong people, but for the people who are living democracy and say that please do not take freedom and democracy for granted. You are the beneficiary of it, but you're also the guardians of it. The price of freedom is eternal vigilance. I really do want to lay out that point to, to people who are reading it, even though they don't really have much power knowledge to Hong Kong. The takeaway for them is to be more aware of what's happening around you and be more socially engaged and to speak up whenever it's necessary. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to the new Statesman on digital, in print or both for as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Doing this interview here in the UK, in recent days, we've seen conservative politicians vote to amend procedures to avoid 
scrutiny and accountability of one of their own party members. Would you say freedom is under threat in the UK? I think freedom is under threat everywhere because of the complacency we've had for the past two decades. We've never been seriously evaluating how the rise of authoritarianism impacting our global democracy is not only a electoral system, it's about a concept, it's about a series of values that we all treasure and it, it needs people to agree to it. It needs people to participate in it so that democracy could work. But what, what if the legitimacy of democracy are being attacked constantly by the authoritarianism? What if authoritarian regimes are using money to buy out all our consciences and to threaten people to go for their way? I think these danger to the democratic values as a whole in the world and also spreading into democratic countries, they are just being overlooked by um, us and by the um, politicians in the West in general. So I think, yes, indeed, we, we've been witnessing the dem democratic backsliding in Hungary, in Poland, somewhere around the world, one of the uh, most reputable de democracy reports says that in the year 2020, it was the very first year that we've got more authoritarian regimes than the democratic ones since 2001. So we could really see that is literally impacting the world. And we had been so complacent to deal with it. It seems too often people are resistant to the idea of or the, even the word authoritarianism until it's too late. What are the early warning signs that people should be looking out from a backslide of democracy in their own countries? In, in the book Freedom, I've been detailedly depicting how authoritarian regime uses that the toolbox to erode the freedom in Hong Kong. For example, free press, they are buying out, well, supposedly independent media and to substitute the mouthpiece into the leadership so that make it more pro-Beijing, they are prosecuting investigative journalists and blocking ways of conduct investigative journalism, including blocking the, the reporters to information from the government. We've been seeing the close down of the largest independent media in Hong Kong and the most vocal critical voice. There are a lot of ways that the government trying to do on that side. But of course, banning rallies, using public health as an excuse to stop people from gathering and also prosecuting activists using the rights to in interpret the constitution to reshape the court, to reshape the judges, to ask the judge to be loyal to the country, to the Chinese communist regime, rather than their legal expertise. These are a lot of different ways that the government could use in order to monopolize all the power. We will grow up learning there is a division of power in Hong Kong. But for now, they are erasing that from textbook. They're teaching our younger generation that there is no division of power. That is only the executive power basically shattering all the others. And this is the new Hong Kong that the Chinese Communist Party wanted to craft. So if everyday civilians are witnessing their governments doing these sorts of things, what powers and what kind of tactics should civilians be using to counter that? First of all, of course, for the people living in democracy, we just have to be more aware, more engaged in politics. Sometimes we are, we were seeing politics as some dirty thing, as a group of rich people dissecting their interest or something that we, we just do not want to touch. But politics can be different. I grew up in a impoverished family. I was a protest leader, but I managed to become a representative of Hong Kong people with a large margin. I managed to 
stand up and to say that we can have different politics. We can have politics that are coming from ideals, coming from idealism of young people. So we just have to be more aware of what's happening in the society and be your own voice. Secondly, of course, get organized to find people who are like-minded and, and, and to try to make something, to try to do something and to reevaluate and to work on it. In, in this book, in the last chapter of it, I intentionally remarked that I, I describe who I am and in what way that I approach activism, what characteristic or, or what, what features should an activist process in order to make a change in the society. And I think these are, 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 are remarks that are much needed, especially in the world that we've been seeing so many problems and so few solutions. And in terms of what other liberal democracies or the international community should be doing to counter the rise of authoritarian regimes and specifically the rise of China and countering its aggression, what, what should they be doing? The very first thing is to have a change of perception. We need to see the rise of the Chinalism or global democratic decline as a global crisis. Indeed, people in dictators, they suffer or they lose lives. And we needed to treat it seriously and to see it as equivalent with other global crises in order to formulate organizations, allies, in order to formulate global agenda and global actions. So I think the very first thing is to, to have a change of perception and to start thinking about how to work on it. Of course, we need actions. We need to um, start decreasing our reliance on China, diversifying our investment, blocking them from accessing our sensitive industry, acquiring, acquiring our information blocking their propaganda and, and infiltration activities, espionage activities, and also crafting alliances that are bound by democratic values and to start helping regions and places that are being threatened by mainly China, like the countries in the South China Sea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, um, Tibet, and Uyghur people. These are concrete things that we can definitely do in order to mitigate that kind of uh, authoritarian influence by the Chinese Communist regime. In recent days, we've seen European MEPs visiting Taiwan in a pretty direct uh, counter to what China actually would want to see happen. Does do moves like that from the EU give you hope that the international community will start responding? We just have to recognize Taiwan more. The only reasons why the world stopped engaging with Taiwan in a high level is because they are afraid of the threat of the Chinese Communist Party. But in fact, no matter how you agree on their sovereignty status, Taiwan is a well-functioning, free democratic political entity. They have their own government, they have their own elections, they have a completely different society than the one in mainland China. Therefore, we just have to recognize that point. They are also one of the countries who outperformed the others in pandemic, remaining it as a, a free and safe place. I think that was a good move and we need to enhance our interaction with them and to be united and to directly send a message to the Chinese Communist Party, which uh, they will support Taiwan if China determ is determined to launch military attacks towards, we, are, we should protect our democratic allies. Taiwan is definitely one of them. Mm -hmm. 
And I wanted to end off with quite a personal question. Can you ever envision a situation in which you could return to Hong Kong? Of course, what I'm doing, my advocacy work, including publishing this book, is hoping that I can pay for my way home. As long as Hong Kong is free democratic, I can step foot again on the soil. Of course, it may take a long period of time. It may take decades. But I genuinely believe that I will come back to Hong Kong when it's free and democratic. Nathan Law, thank you so much. This has been World Review from the New Statesman with me, Megan Gibson. You can read all of the New Statesman's international coverage at newstatesman.com slash international. We'll be back Thursday with our discussion episode. If you've liked this episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and tell a friend to listen. Tell an enemy to listen. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.